outlook. I mean, a lot of people have been asking me, what do we do about climate change, geoengineering or, or uh, photovoltaic energy, or, you know, there are always technological ideas about how to, how to make the world a better place. And I'm saying, don't begin with the technology, begin with the economy, begin with the specific structures of exchange that we humans have developed historically transform them, redesign them, and what is a sustainable technology will emerge more or less as a result of that. I think that that changing the economy is really very important for changing a sense of identity also. But part of the problem is exactly even, even here, it's, it's money, even in, in, in the way it shapes our identities, because it makes everything exchangeable. And I would argue that that is precisely at the core of modernity. Everything is interchangeable, right? Uh, that's what money tells us, the market tells us, but it also means that people are interchangeable. Places are interchangeable. Things are interchangeable. The market makes everything interchangeable. So. We move into an abstract landscape of, of commodities, and 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 I think that there is a, there's a strong urge to get reconnected with something that's not interchangeable, that's not exchangeable, a place. Welcome to the Three Ecologies podcast. In today's world, we often feel confronted by a whole series of crises, from climate change and global inequality to the mental health crisis and the rise of reactionary politics through so-called right-wing populists. And in the midst of these crises, there emerges an increasingly widespread desire at times almost a desperation for technological solutions. If only we had enough solar panels or the perfect carbon capture device, climate change could be averted. If only we produced enough household appliances and motorized vehicles, global inequality could be ameliorated. If only we had enough fact-checking mechanisms, the spread of right-wing ideology could be halted. Now in part one of our discussion with Alf Hornburg, we already challenged some of the very underlying assumptions of such analyses and the arising desire and desperation for technological solutions. We talked about the fallacies of the discourse of technological development and we challenge the promise of neoliberal economics to provide unlimited good through global trade. In this second part, Alf Hornburg puts forward another direction for generating the kind of societal renewal that could overcome present contradictions and increasing stresses on environmental, social and mental relations. Rather than obsessing over blueprints for technological fixes, Alf urges us to reconfigure our economic system. One of the directions he proposes is a complementary currency which would foster 
more localized production and economic activity. This would not only curb the fossil fuel and carbon emissions resulting from the transportation of consumer goods across the globe, but could also restore a sense of belonging and community in a globalized economy increasingly characterized by anonymity, alienation and unrest. quotes from the 1992 article that I wanted to pull out, which I think are are expressive of a tension running through your larger body of work. So on the one hand, you say the dictionary definition of a machination as a plot mm. highlights the social intrigue underlying the industrial machine. So we have this language of plotting, intrigue, etc. Yeah. on the on the other hand, and this is quite a distinct formulation, uh, I'll, I'll read out this a bit longer quote. Since the products of human labor, as distinct from food, cannot be eaten by other humans, it is misleading to describe the exploitation of labor as predation among men. But these products embodying human uh, products embodying human exergy can be incorporated into the technomass. And then here, this is the really important part. Industry itself then is the predator to which humans fall prey. What is produced is uninteresting as long as labor and materials can be had in exchange because human needs are not the issue. Production is the goal in itself, answering to the needs of the techno mass. Mm -hmm, yeah. So to sort of summarize it, on the one hand, you have, yeah. yes, there are people in Frankfurt, uh, in Wall Street, and all of these mm -hmm. uh, evil cities, we might say, uh, sort of uh, plotting to, to control the rest of the world. On the other hand, and this is again very compatible with the new reading of Marx, which I mentioned earlier, you have a what he called an übergreifendes subject, like an automatic or all-encompassing uh, subject of capital, or you might say the technomass, which has its only goal of sort of valorizing and expanding itself. And then uh, people become bearers of that process. Um, but uh, th yeah. thank you for confronting me with that quote. You know, that's almost 30 years ago. It's 1992. I must have written it about 30 years ago. <laughs> um, but it, absolutely. I remember distinctly having the feeling that there was some kind of agency in the global technomass. It was, it was a, a huge monster that was devouring human time, uh, and that is a kind of rendering of, of of the process that I think a lot of the post-humanists would like. You know, artifacts as agents and so on. Um, but I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't uh, sound quite. <laughs> the same to me any longer. I, I uh, uh, now there, there are people. People are the agents. People use technology, and uh, they don't. I don't think they're quite aware, uh, or very, very few of them, that they're actually using technology to exploit others. Uh, so I, I, um, I can't. 
I can't think of the technomass as a conspiracy uh, in a conscious sense. It's a machination. But then um, there have been so many historical machinations that different civilizations have rested upon and very rarely people have understood the totality in which they're involved. I mean, we are sitting sort of as beneficiaries of this system. We are not all that different from those Melanesian cargo cult people who, who were at a disadvantage and who were victims of this system. They could not see beyond their horizon. They could not see the totality of the system that they were part of. And I would argue that modern Americans and Europeans are equally confined to just a, a part of, 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 of the system in terms of their understanding. one time so far that we've regularly read out a quote from the work that inspired the title of the show by Felix Guattari, The Three Ecologies. I'm not sure if you, no. if you know about his work. But, I read it. Um, I'm, I'm going to read the quote in a second, but I really, this is, this is such a crucial point and I like, I'm really glad that we got here in the discussion because this seems to be, uh, this is, a, this is a really fascinating point at which there is a question of, um, there, there is some. There's a question of what is ideology here? What is fetishism? Can we just let go of fetishism? What would that take? Because as much as I, as much as I appreciate your kind of taking responsibility to say like, no, we are using this. So, implying we could stop. And then there is the question: Well, could we? Are we? And this is the sort of ambiguity that I think will really. Uh, uh, struck that that ambiguity with those two quotes, and I think they can sort of hold at the same time. And in a similar way, I think I think we sort of we as part of the of the um, Western Northern um, profiteers of this of this arrangement of this global metabolism, I think we can hold at the same time that we're profiting. And that we're at the same time also losing from it. So I think what I'm really interested in is like, what is the kind of solidarity that could emerge across, you know, Rosling's seven people, seven puppets, mm. where we don't have to deny either our own suffering that comes as a consequence and very much the critiques of Marcuse, Heidegger, Mumford, these people who talk about, and, and, and laser people a lot now about alienation and sort of depression within our societies and the, so, the way which we are just socially alienated from one another and the, uh, amongst the very most affluent. So it seems like on the one hand, it's really important to emphasize no one is in a way really benefiting from it, but at the same time, clearly, materially there are these asymmetric flows so how can you insist on sort of we're all in this together and we're all kind of suffering uh and this is something that i think the, very much in line with uh the other book i have here ivan illich tools for mm. conviviality where he often i think of course he says 
in the 1970s, he says still some countries the, the, still have the choice. Do they want to enter this path of industrialization or not? That choice isn't really there anymore today. However, I do think that what was really interesting about his work is that he always appealed to concepts like self-reliance and that he pointed out that there's just as much misery in the sort of metropolis where car traffic dominates social life and, and, and distances us more than it gives us the speed to catch up with that distance. So the quote that I want to read here uh, from, from Guattari is the following. Um, Kinship networks tend to be reduced uh, to a bare minimum. Domestic life is being poisoned by the gangrene of mass media consumption. Family and married life are frequently ossified by a sort of standardization of behavior, and neighborhood relations are generally reduced to their meanest expression. And he's talking in he's talking very much about the French context or from the French context there. And I think there is something powerful in holding this together. And I'm wondering, because I really want to reject this gesture of sort of the white men's burden, the, the, the return of the white men's burden of saying, Oh, we're or so the, sorry. The for inconvenient f- truth you like to talk about. Yeah, as yeah. Well, be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I really like that. I really like to take uh, El Gore to task here and say, mm. this is ecological crisis is much more than an inconvenient truth because inconvenient mm. truth implies we over here are doing so well, which denies all the ways of suffering, which denies the persistence of uh, of sexism, which cannot be fixed by more washing machines, as we talked mm-hmm. about in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like it's very questionable whether more washing machines are gonna are gonna fix these social relations, or if they're just if they at best provide a little a little crutch, uh, or even entrench further the same social relations uh, out of which they grew very much. Um, but. So how can we how can we insist that ecological crisis isn't just an inconvenient truth where we have to admit, oh crap, this has been going bloody well for us, but now we're facing the inconveniences of climate change and poverty in the third world. But I want to insist and say, no, this is actually this 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 crisis involves us. This crisis involves our mental ecology, our social relations also in the in the in in the in the privileged sectors which are nonetheless materially privileged as you point out yeah i, I think um and this goes back to uh, what i said before about the market being a kind of a magic uh, or market transactions being a kind of a magic and it also goes back to our critical discussion of neoclassical economics and and the total obsession with money um, from the 1870s on and and you know the only the only possible it, it really sounds banal to say solution but the, the only the only uh, the only political alternative that I see actually to continued exploitation and collapse is that we, we, and I realize we is a problematic word, but that humanity gains a reflexive distance vis-a-vis the money sign. Um, Because the money sign is a very peculiar kind of artifact that only the human species could devise. 
but I would argue, and I don't think it's hype to say that money, general purpose money, all purpose money, um, is really what is at the root of the Anthropocene, uh, global inequalities, globalization, all the major problems we have, because uh, it makes all values interchangeable. And I do actually believe that there are ways of redesigning money and markets to make it impossible to convert our labor time into Chinese labor time, for example, with a profit. Um, I think there are ways of doing this. And without you know, sounding too much like a social engineer, I, 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 I think that that's where we have to look. I mean, a lot of people have been asking me, what do we do about climate change, a geoengineering or, or photovoltaic energy, or, you know, there are always technological ideas about how to, how to make the world a better place. And I'm saying, don't begin with the technology, begin with the economy, begin with the specific structures of exchange that we humans have developed historically, transform them, redesign them. And what, is a sustainable technology will emerge more or less as a result of that. Now, I don't know if you want me to get into the details of what such a- as, a No, reform. as someone, <laughs> I was actually, I wanted to bring this up because as someone who lived in Bristol for two years and never held a <sighs> Bristol pound in his hand, I was very, uh, because it was interesting as when I moved to Bristol, uh, some people, especially friends who studied related fields, ecological economics or these yeah. kinds of things, they always asked me, oh, oh, the Bristol pound. And the Bristol pound is this, is this alternative currency that is one of the better known ones. Um, and I never held a single Bristol pound in my hand in two years in Bristol, which kind of proves or is 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 a point in case for what you're saying about the failures of the Bristol pound. So maybe you can talk about that and how alternative yeah. cur currencies should be designed to actually work. Yeah, great. Yeah, there was a piece actually in ecological economics a couple of years back that uh, tried to evaluate the Bristol pound experiment. And uh, it was rather uh, disappointing uh, because they showed that a very small minority of the population in Bristol actually ever used it. And uh, also, and which is the more problematic aspect, that it seemed to have no uh, localizing uh, consequences, really, and and of course this is because the 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 Bristol pound, like other um, local currencies, the local exchange trade systems, and so on, um, it it it's, it 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 encourages people to do their business locally within uh, uh, Bristol, so to speak, but it does not put a spanner in the wheel of globalization because you can go into any shop in Bristol and buy stuff from China. So, so the question is, how do we organize an economy that really puts a spanner in the wheel of globalization? And the Bristol pound obviously doesn't do that. You can buy stuff from California or China or anywhere, as long as you buy it in this particular shop in Bristol. Uh, but I wanted to turn it around and suggest a complementary currency that can only be used to purchase goods and services that have been produced within a certain geographical radius of the point of purchase. So it's not that you know it's not that you 
you use a certain money just locally and then you can buy whatever you want from the whole world is you use a certain money that is constrained that it who's which which, which has a, has a limited reach in terms of geography so you cannot use it to be part of the exploitation of distant continents either their resources or their labor and as far as I can see, this is not even in violation of uh, the World Trade Organization's ideas about free trade, because it gives people the option of either using these coupons or whatever or not. And and I think there are good reasons. I mean, what I what I've done is I've suggested that that this complementary currency should be. Um, produced by the authorities, the nation state, for example, and distributed as a basic income to all citizens. And um, and that means that that it, it is... I like the idea of universal basic income, but I think it's very important that the currency that is distributed is not just general purpose money, because then that actually increases the capacity of people to partake in the exploitation of the global South. Whereas if if, if the basic in- income is paid in a complementary currency with this limited geographical reach, it will also be, uh, uh, it will also have sustainability consequences. consumption of goods mm-hmm. as well and not, and not as much on sort of um, intermediate uh, production processes uh, in which there's not a sort of gratification on someone's end when steel is entered into a uh, production process it, it enters into that process in order to later on fulfill a, a, some form of gratification and one of the ways in which your work has been quite influential for me is in thinking about renewable energy and in thinking about, okay, the so as you mentioned earlier, the solar panels uh, manufactured in China only to be uh, imported into Germany or, you know, um, wind turbine bases manufactured in a shipyard in Indonesia with very low wages, poor working and environmental conditions and so on. And one of the things which I would ask and again, you're running up against World Trade Organization and EU state aid rules and so on, but about um, specifications on the total distance that can be traveled uh, for these um, Mm -hmm. uh, components um, that are put together into the renewable energy technologies or the total emissions, which are even allowed to to go into it um, as well. Because I also see the final consumption element as important at the end of the day, but I think by only focusing on that, we can we can forget this intermediate uh, production processes as well, which are often some of the most uh, environmentally um, damaging and 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 sort of uh, socially un- unequal as well. Um, 
So does does that make sense in terms of a, a, a challenge to the, the final consumption bias of a, a currency um, yeah. policy? Well, definitely. I think, uh, of course, I mean, to begin with, it's all about final consumption. But I think that this reform would, would sort of encourage the the emergence of much higher economic diversity at the local level. It's like sort of ecological succession theory, you know, you would see, I mean, imagine that that all the households all of a sudden have this complementary currency, which creates a demand for local produce and local services is going to uh, encourage a lot of local enterprise and entrepreneurship uh, not just in producing final goods, but in actually also delivering, you know, uh, parts and components and local transports and whatever. Um, I, I'm not much into entrepreneurship, but but I, I, I have I have the intuitive feeling that this would sort of encourage a a completely different kind of economic diversity at a local level, uh, which would also include probably uh, you know production of of, uh, of various kinds. And um, so, so, so I think it would it would it would set sort of it would set off a, a trajectory toward greater diversity, both economic and 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 biological at the local level. Um, and of course, it would give a very different kind of social social setting. I'm thinking of of your quote from uh, before about how we have been sort of impoverished socially, and now we're just sort of nuclear families at most. And, and uh, I'm thinking how this could be a way to regenerate a, a wider sphere of, of connectivity between people and, and less alienation and, and, mm. and, and so on. Because I think the interesting thing when you propose this, when you propose, when you sort of bring that, bring that concept or that, that, that throw that idea into the, into the ring, I think sometimes we still have the impulse to sort of, this reflex of technological progress or innovation to think, okay, could could Alf Hornborg provide the the social innovation? Now we have a category of social innovations, right? Like, oh, could this be the social innovation that would fix it? And 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 the way I would understand you is not that you're proposing some sort of perfect social technology for fixing all our problems, mm. but you're pointing out a direction mm. in a rather general and crude way, yes. very, yeah. very, very self-admittedly crude direction, mm. which is based on a certain understanding of general purpose money. So it's not so much about the, the solution being this perfect social technology that no. cut, cut right through all no. our problems, but that it's at least that it starts to understand environmental problems differently and is more entangled and Precisely, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's also uh, implicit in that is also a resistance to movements much, much greater than your, than your person. And then as I wish your work would be in the world, movements by like the World Economic Forum or, mm. or you know, the Great Reset, these types of movements, which to me seem to steer even harder in the opposite direction of making things even more commensurable. So making all mm. sorts of environmental services commensurable, measuring up everything and making them even more soluble yeah. with each other. Yeah. And I think what you're pointing in is the direction that actually by what 
might look like we're not, quote unquote, directly addressing climate change, which these the great resetters of the world and the Bill Gateses, they sort of prize themselves and they ride on that wave of technological solutionism where it looks like they're tackling the problem head on. But actually, they are further entrenching the conditions, the economic conditions which got us into this into this mess is what you're saying. Yeah, and you're yeah. saying we need to change the underlying relations we have to each other. And then we can then we can sort of uh, tinker with that and local context should probably tinker differently with that. If you if you see yourself as standing in the in the tradition of Ivan Illich, I think he's he's always someone who points out we should enable people to make their own systems again. This mm-hmm. is not about you coming up with the with yeah. the great reset alternative, the alternative global program for everyone, but it's a different way of approaching this problem yeah no absolutely right i mean i i yeah and and when i get all these i mean i i often present this to my students this this idea just to give them a sense of hope you know after i've said that everything is going to collapse and they say well what are we going to do and i said and i said well we have to uh, we have to start thinking more critically about what money does to the world and i would argue in fact that um money is like like the virus that we're experiencing now, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a it's a meme. It's a meme that really creates disaster, ecological and social, and political. And um, uh, I sometimes run into the phrase that capitalism is the virus, um, but capitalism for me is is the result. It's the aggregate result of this virus this meme, which is general purpose money. Capitalism is the totalized logic of what happens when everybody is dealing with general purpose money. Uh, and and in order to uh, you know try to cure the, the planet and the, and our civilization, we have to get at the virus, at, at at the cause the cause of this problem. And this is one of the reasons. Going back to what we were talking about, you know, conflicts before. This is one of the reasons why I don't think we can say that there is a group of evil capitalists, you know, who are responsible, because responsibility devolves on the artifact of money. The responsibility is in the artifact. This is where I would agree with Bruno Latour, you know. I I will not use the word agency, but I will say that money is such an enormously um, powerful component of social life that the causality that's somehow inherent in money is what we have to deal with not some evil people called capitalists because they're just the ones who happen to have most of the money. You know, it's like the winners of a monopoly game. You know, we, we can't, we can't shoot the, the winners just because there's always be somebody to take their place. We have hate, to hate, hate the game, not the player. Exactly. And we can change the rules of the game. We can change the rules. We can change the pieces. It's like we can redesign the, the the structure of a chess game, you know, by taking the pieces and saying, from now on, it can only move so many steps, you know. Uh, we have to we have to work at that level to understand uh, that it's a big game we're involved in. It's a very dangerous game and a very violent game. Uh, but but we are the authors of that game of the rules 
whenever whenever I try to persuade economists that we need to get out money, you know, they'll basically just laugh at me. Of course, it's ridiculous. I mean, how could you have a, a, a how could you have a, a discipline of economics and, and not have money the way they have conceptualized it for two hundred years? where we can where we can ask that question again like do we need fetishism which is i think so i would slightly distinguish between we could even include technology your sort of third fetishism that you add to marx's money fetishism and commodity fetishism yeah. um but then something like neoclassical economics or sort of innovation discourse and these kinds of things i would say that's ideology so that's doing a lot of the obfuscation that's doing a lot of the uh, that's 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 providing the normality but to some extent it's not it's a it's 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 the medium in which these uh, fetishes can work um however the question is so if we dismantle neoclassical economics and we hold their feet to the fire and say look at asymmetric uh, exchange look at look at the actual energy transfers here and don't measure it in money because you're just exploiting lower wages and lower land rents mm. elsewhere and mm. selling that off as some sort of net gain even though it's oft it's in most cases a net loss the net gain is only in money so if you leave out money then then we can dismantle this type of thinking this type of ideology mm. but then we are stuck with these sort of hinges of the game of the monopoly game the hinges are money commodity technology and 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 i'm wondering how you think about this because to me it feels like while something like neoclassical economics we can quote unquote abolish or 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 get rid of Uh, I wonder what it means to get rid of fetishes, which doesn't mean like, do we have to take one out and slot another one in? And how can you have a fetish? How can you have artifacts stabilizing social relations? Um, that Do you have to be unaware of the fetish? Do you have to be ideologized about the fetish? So how could we play with different configurations of fetishes? That, in that sense, how could we yeah. induce a different rule of the game and take that seriously? Yeah. But then when it doesn't work, take ourselves out again and try out different rules. Well, right. I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a never-ending project to defetishize our relation to our artifacts. I mean, uh, as an anthropologist, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember reading about the Kula trade and, and all these, you know, how, how people, and, and even going back to the Inca with their spondylus shells and so on, how we have always, as humans, had a tendency to become so focused on our artifacts that we do not see the social relations that they embody. And we make the artifacts into our uh 
object, the objects of our games. I mean, these Melanesians who took their canoes over to the other islands in, in the Kula circle, they were so focused on those ornaments, uh, the necklaces and so on, that they seem to be fully absorbed by these items rather than the social relations that they actually uh, expressed and, and, and reproduced. And I think that humans continue to do this. I mean, look at the way we handle money. The economists are preoccupied with money. The engineers are preoccupied with their machines. It's always like society becomes embodied in artifacts and then we play with the artifacts and forgetting that we're actually playing with social relations. And uh, so you're asking, how do we get away from fetishism? And I think the perennial project that we need to just continue with, that Marx, you know, did, but not sufficiently, is to, to realize precisely what the social implications of our artifacts are and to redesign them accordingly. And at this particular point in history, uh, we should be able to get our eyes on the fact that uh, renewable energy technologies may be embodiments of labor and resources um, that are appropriated very cheaply at the on the other side of the planet. Um, we should be able to see what money does and so on. And, and I do think that we could create um, another kind of money that that is somehow uh, that somehow reflects our sensitivity to to what money could potentially do in terms of creating violence and asymmetries. Um, I, I I imagine that it will be possible to use this local local currency. It's not a local currency, but this complementary currency that I mentioned uh, in full awareness of the benefits of it having a limited geographical reach, of knowing that when I spend this money, it's not going to be part of an exploitative strategy ripping off Chinese laborers and landscapes. In other words, that we could regenerate some kind of morality in our economic system by endowing our artifacts with the kinds of restraint that a moral understanding of the modern world economy should should give us the sense of restraint. I remember Clive Hamilton in in his book, I think it was Defiant Earth, talked about how we have to become more humble. Uh, we have to start practicing restraint. And this is exactly what I mean. Um, he was not into complementary currencies, but I think that redesigning money in the sense that I suggest would be a way of of, 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 um, of finding a way of restraining our our reach. Um, we are creatures capable of creating and using money, but then that means we're also creatures capable of redesigning those money signs. We have to understand the the implications of the signs we use uh, is like is like being aware of of what your language does you know and and we are we we, we choose our words right 
language is one way of semiotically communicating. Money is another way of semiotically communicating. But in the, in the same way that we have gained control over our language, at least we try to, we should struggle to gain control over money as a means of communication that doesn't create the disasters it, it currently creates. quick question would you th so i mean this is more sort of a technical theoretical question would that would would such a complementary currency not be fetishized would that not be a fetish I'm, i mean this might be a very granular point but i'm just wondering yeah well, is fetishism always necessary are we just uh, do we need to experiment with fetishisms and i have a lot of follow-on questions yeah. to that or is, way, or is that completely defetishized Well, the, let's see. The, the way uh, Karl Marx defined fetishism um, very briefly and concisely was to say that it was a way of treating relations between humans as if they were relations between things, right? And um, that is very applicable to money uh, and to commodities. And I would, as I've argued, it's also applicable to machines. Um, We treat them as relations between things rather than relations between between persons. And what you're asking, would this complementary currency in itself be a kind of fetishism? Um, I think less so than the money we're using today. At least, at least there would be a a a potential, a possibility in this complementary currency to see it as a, um, a benevolent currency that, that would generate more beneficial human relations and also have less destructive impacts on, on ecology. So I think I think we could it, it would be a kind of a an enlightenment and emancipation because we would we would know what our money does in a way we don't know now. When we buy Brazilian meat, we don't know and we don't need to know what it does to Brazilian ecology or a Brazilian workers. But using a complementary currency that can only be used within, say, the nearest 40 kilometers, we will be much closer to seeing the consequences of this money. And it would be easier for us to grasp the impacts of our currency, of our, of our, of our artifacts. So if, if, if it's a matter of degree, I would say it would be, it would be, a, it would be a way to defetishize the economy um, at least to a degree. But of course, the, the risk is always there that somebody will be piling up their complementary currency and, and will be more engaged with those items than with what they represent in terms of human exchange and human community. Yeah. 
And it would also hypothetically create new social relations within that 40 kilometer uh, radius or whatever exactly. it might be that are, that are personal social relations rather than the impersonal social relations that characterize global capitalism Absolutely. Uh, today yeah. as well. So That's very important. Today we live in a, in a society where money makes uh, anonymous exchange sort of fundamental. Uh, we usually do not know the producers or the consumers, but uh, this would certainly bring us closer to each other. And in that sense, I suppose some would say it's going back to a pre-modern economy. But um, of course, once we're talking about using digital technologies and and so on, uh, we know we can't go back. It, it's it's a way of taking stock of where our current monetary system is is bringing us and and trying to avert catastrophe by by uh, redesigning the, the the sign system that is generating this catastrophe. But there's, and I think again, this whole idea of going back is, of course, again a concession to this to the implicit framing of progress, which we want to resist, right? Right. Yeah. And I, and I think this is sometimes so important, which kind of annoys me when people point out, like, oh, we privileged Westerners, kind of related to the point that I made before with the Guattari quote about we are miserable too. Mm. We're privileged. Mm. and miserable <laughs> in different ways, in different ways. And We're mater materially privileged, but but perhaps socially underprivileged, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're very well-salaried, right. <laughs> miserable social mm. creatures, yeah. um, in, in, in some ways at least. I mean, that's not to sort of equivocate between different kinds of suffering, but to create the possibility for solidarity. Solidarity mm. is always across difference. But for me, what annoys me when people say, oh, we have to get used to the idea of cutting our, our energy expenditure by 90%, it always sounds like life is going to get less exciting with that. Mm. And I want to mm. rephrase that. And I want to say there is a way of doing the thing that you're proposing, which would make life more fun. That can be an exciting prospect of re-regionalizing and mm. actually having relations. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and I would say also that it, in this context, it's interesting to reflect about the almost religious interest we have in Euro-American civilization for indigenous peoples. I mean, uh, dances with wolves, uh, the whole romanticism about North American Indians, South American Indians, indigenous peoples. And I would say that what really characterizes these people, the whole idea of the native, the indigenous person is the absence of money. These people are not part of a global commercial market as we are, and nor do they have the modern technology and energy. So, so that there's somehow a, a, uh, a fascination and perhaps even a longing for a different kind of existence um, that, is, that is very, very different from the, the lives that we do lead. It's really interesting because one thing I was thinking as we were talking about this now is 
what are the kinds of social roles, let's say, that we would need to facilitate such a transition. Because I think if we talk about these kinds of things, we realize it's not just about, oh, let's just stop using our cell phones and then it's going to get better. This is a profound transition. And I think we're so we're oftentimes so eager to be 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 told, oh, which products can I buy now and which ones are the baddies, which ones are the goodies. The stuff we're talking about now is much more difficult than that. It's yeah. not just about someone telling you buy this rather than that, buy organic rather than mm. the non-organic, buy fair trade and these kinds of things. It's not just a simple consumerist switch to, okay, I'll buy the good things now. Mm. There, there's a more profound reconstitution of society, which is not going to happen in an instance. But mm. that transition is more profound. And I was wondering, what are the social roles that would facilitate that, that would facilitate that? And then I was reminded of an interesting point that you made, I think it was in the laundry machine, mm. because about our, our very anatomical thinking and how we think in terms of anatomy, how we think in terms of mm. an organism carved out from its environment. And you've made this point about Rosling, that it's perhaps not a coincidence that he comes from the, from the medical sciences. How do we come to a concept of, uh, of a doctor as someone who, is, who purely treats anatomy, who thinks in terms of anatomy? And what you seem to be suggesting is we need to be thinking in terms of ecology, not in terms of anatomy. Hmm. And one thing that I definitely didn't want to miss is to ask you about your frustration with the case study approach. And I wanted to ask about the sort of the role that intellectuals or, I mean, maybe we even have to get rid of the whole category of the intellectual, but it seems like there is a bit of an analogy between the doctor and the intellectual that we tend to think in terms of anatomy. We tend to think in, in terms of the anatomy of a closed off context. And, it, and, and, and you have in many of your papers or lectures more so expressed this kind of struggle that you're saying, maybe this is my problem to come up with a whole different way of, of doing this. This is not just about global versus local. This is abandoning this thinking in terms of anatomy, in terms of closed off organism and thinking in terms of global metabolism. Yeah, uh, um, I remember, I think it was one of the chapters in Global Magic where I had this discussion of how we have become increasingly, or increasingly, I don't know, but we have become very preoccupied in our civilization with the internal design of of both organisms and machines. And I, I think I drew a connection between uh, the way uh, vivisectionists in the uh, 17th century thought that they understood an organism by, by cutting them up and looking at their inside. And, uh, and, and similarly, how we think of technology as being basically a question of blueprints. How are machines constructed? And in both cases, we are we are um, excising the organism and the machine from the external flows of resources to and from them. And, and I'm suggesting that we cannot understand either an organism or a machine without understanding uh, the flows of resources and energy that keep them alive. Uh, so, and, and I, I guess in both cases, we're talking about fetishism, even, even, even the view of an organism as a, as bounded by its skin is a kind of fetishism. It's, it's looking at what is a manifestation of a, an ecological process and looking at that as an object or what Tim Ingold would have called a blob. Uh, you know, he, he, in one of his lectures, he talked about 
looking at at, at at phenomena as bundles of lines or as blobs. And I think, uh, although it doesn't get into this particular discussion, that's, that's exactly what it's about. We think of... Um, this is fetishized understanding of, of, of reality it means that we're looking at blobs, machines and organisms rather than as flows and lines and relations. Um, and um, yeah, I, uh, please remind me what, what your question was there. Well, the, the case study approach, which you've sort of, yeah. because that's something that, that, that really characterizes the discipline that you come from, of anthropology, right? Mm. And I think this was, for me, a fascinating intersection of sort of, if we can even distinguish those. And I think I like your work at the points where, where it points out that these bleed in with one another between methodology and content. Because the, the the kind of case study approach seems to be not just a methodological obstacle that you sort of, you, you say this in some lectures that you say people want you to do a study of a technology and then you somehow resist that intuitively and you don't don't even quite know why maybe it would have been better for your career to just do that because that 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 would have had more currency in the <laughs> more yeah, purchase. No, I, no I, yeah, I, right. That, that is a problem. Um, First of all, in terms of anthropology, because like you say, anthropology is very, very focused on ethnography and everybody has to go out, sit for a couple of years in a village somewhere or and, and then go home and write their thesis, the case study approach. And for some uh, anthropologists, this is the only way of doing anthropology. And I have always actually, I'll, I'll admit, I have found it, I, I, I found it very difficult to, to be this kind of mainstream ethnographer. I have done field work in, uh, in Nova Scotia, Canada, and in Peru and Brazil and so on. Um, but, you know, the field work I did with, with the Mi'kmaq natives of, First Nations of Nova Scotia in 1991-1992 in those years. I still have the notebooks, you know, but I, I haven't published that. It never turned into anything because I felt um, that this was... For one thing, I felt that the information I had was just too personal to... Uh, to capitalize on, to build a career on. Uh, but also I had this hesitation about understanding local realities as just these local realities. I wanted to see the whole picture. Um, as my teacher, Jonathan Friedman, once argued, there is no ethnography of the global. You cannot sit in a village in Africa or South America and see the world system. You can certainly discuss how the world system is experienced, like these Melanesian cargo cult people, how you experience. And a lot of people are writing interesting things about how the Anthropocene is being and climate change is being experienced uh, in a local context. But I, I, I couldn't find myself being content with that. I wanted to understand the the global system as a totality. And that's very difficult to do, even through multi-sighted ethnography, as they say.
there is a question for me, which is not just a sort of question for for people within academia, because I think sometimes this gets too much siloed into a sort of methodology becomes this kind of as if methodology didn't matter to the world. I think the first thing we have to do as as as, as academics is to reappropriate the, the societal moral importance of methodology, because mm. the way we engage, the way we make the world visible, the way that we see the world in the first place. I mean, you could you could make a genealogy of anthropology similar to uh, classical and neoclassical economics, right? That these ways of seeing derive from a certain world order, yeah. right? That where does ethnography as a method come from? So there seems to be a real need for method methodological innovation, not just for the sake of advancing some careers and coming up with a fancy new framing that will merit its own journal or whatever. But this this seems to me one of these themes where we could actually emphasize again the importance of the academy uh, socially, societally. I was quite grateful for your lived crisis of methodology, which I think you've you've still managed fine in your in your own biography. I, I was asked to do a guest editorial for the Anthropology Today journal just the other month uh, or, or this spring, I think it was, uh, the journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute. And I, I wrote about the problems of, of not being able to, I said, I basically argued that anthropologists are supposed to be confined to the local experience, local case study, but the Anthropocene is not. The process of the Anthropocene are global. So, in other words, the methodology that anthropologists are supposed to pursue is not adapted to understanding the global processes of the Anthropocene that we are involved in. And this is a basic problem. And that actually even goes for, for the whole concept of culture. Culture, which used to be the central concept for anthropology, we can no longer go and say that the bongo bongo out there have their own culture. We know very well that culture has become very globalized. They watch television and so on and so on. So culture is uh, is a question of global processes once again. So this the case study approach is very ill adapted to understanding either culture or economy in the current world. These Some of these arguments are not only acceptable, but perhaps even uh, longed for in anthropology, but we're extremely constrained by our focus on exotic ethnography. You also talk about, you talk about, you call it disciplinary myopia, and you talk about a kind of a disintegration of knowledge, and you even refer to uh, the the, to Babel, to the tower at, at, at yeah, Babel, yeah, and, the, global magic, yeah. and the, right. the, the confusion of tongues. And this for me, and you talked specifically about how PhD students are increasingly compelled, forced institutionally to become ever narrower. They, they always tell us, you know, identify a gap in the literature. And yeah. what you seem to, what you seem to be saying is not only is this sort of profoundly abusive to the human beings of PhD students because we we, we we make them myopic. If it was ever different, I'm not sure. So on the one hand, there's that that the the human question of what do we do with students, what do we do with people entering academia? And then on the other question, there's the on the other side, there's a complementary question of how 
can our methodology be adapt to the kinds of issues that we're dealing with? And that seems to be, they seem to go together. The way in which programs are structured, the way in which the, the way in which PhD programs are structured seem to be tied up with this question of methodology, with this question of the case study, with with this with this very with the fragmentation of knowledge. one there was one last theme which uh, I mean we do we don't we don't need to get into but something that I found quite fascinating you had this I think it's a video that's just on YouTube where you mentioned it where you mentioned a sort of a, a frustration with the way in which Trump is criticized in a very contradictory way that on the one hand we sort of we sort of criticize uh, yes. him for not being environmentalist and denying mm -hmm. climate change and withdrawing from the Paris agreement mm -hmm. but then on the other hand he's sort of scolded for uh, for um, protection his for protectionism yeah, yeah that's what you so so uh, so bringing like making America great again and 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 being against uh, Uh, or at least in rhetoric against global trade and how, and this was just something where I was wondering if there is a fear for you, because I mean, we've talked about your work going back decades and now there has been, and I really don't want to, there's such a slippery slope to get into the whole in the age of Brexit and Trump kind of terrain. Mm, sure. I don't want to make it about that, but I think some of these phenomena I find them troubling when reading your work because it makes me feel like what's happening is that uh, localization or protectionism is increasingly associated and unquestionably associated with xenophobia and racism. Xenophobia, exactly, yes. And, yes. and one of the things that I just found so... Um, one of the quotes that I just wanted to read out was where you say... I think it was in a talk you gave, the mainstream denunciation of protectionism implies a dismissal of any policy to encourage self-sufficiency, very uh, illage-like yeah. language there, um, reduced vulnerability and restraint of global transports. Given its implicit endorsement of asymmetric resource flows and economic polar polarization, and you might add, environmental degradation, uh, the concept of globalization ultimately represents a less offensive way of talking about imperialism. Yeah. And I just, there was one, there's a concept, I'm not sure if he coined it, but there's a very funny German politician and, and, and sat satirist uh, of the, he's in the EU parliament, and he always talks about the extreme center, kind of pushing mm. back on this horseshoe theory. I think Tariq Ali, the Pakistani okay. British. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Did he coin that term? Originally came up yeah. with it to sort of describe the, uh, before Jeremy Corbyn was elected Labour Party leader, you had just this. Uh, 
consensus between the Cameronite Conservative Party, which was a bit more socially liberal than the contemporary Conservative Party is, and the right-wing Labour Party con- converging on an extreme centre. Yeah, that's, that's a very good expression. Well, I can tell you Sweden is about as extremely centrist as you can get. And, mm. and uh, yeah, well, I think this is a real political problem. And when I mentioned Trump, I think that article was in the conversation uh, where I where I, I really wanted to expose the, the very contradictory critique that was leveled at him by the same people. You know, how can you contradict somebody for... Uh, leaving the the the, uh, the Paris you know agreement on on climate, and for being a climate denialist, and at the same time, uh, wanting to abandon the kind of free trade policy that, at least to my understanding, is part of the reason why we have climate change. And I I really wanted to just uh, raise awareness of the fact that mainstream economists, at least, were being very contradictory in celebrating both free trade and the um, concession to climate change at the same time. Because, Mm. uh, you know, logically, the economists should be saying, gosh, we need to rethink what the market is doing with the world and what free trade is doing. And but rather than doing that, they are running into contradictions like like jumping at at Trump. And not for a minute do I want to be associated with with the likes of Donald Trump. But I do think there's a political arena here that the the political landscape has been transformed by recent uh, happenings. And I guess Brexit is part of this, Trump is part of this, Bolsonaro is part of this, Le Pen is part of this in France, where uh, neoliberal globalization, in order to maintain its hegemony, has sort of painted a picture where we have a simple binary choice. Either we're for globalization or we're xenophobic. Mm. Exactly. You know, and what has happened is that where I used to feel myself grounded, the, the left, the Marxist left. And the anti-European, anti-Brussels left as exactly. well. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. When I, I was in 1994, yeah. I was there was a, a referendum in Sweden about joining the European Union. And I remember voting against joining the European Union from a leftist perspective, because I thought of the European Union as being a capitalist project. And then so many decades later, uh, the whole Brexit idea became one of, you know, right wing populists versus you know, some kind of well centrist enlightened, pro- enlightened, enlightened reasonable progressive people. people. Yes. Yeah. And 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 I, I see a lot of my 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 leftist friends in Sweden having joined the ranks of the neoliberals and making the main antagonist the right wing populists. And uh, I can see why they do that, because they're so disgusted with with what some of these people are saying, but it means that they are sort of diminishing their their the what to me is really the most main conflict and that is the, the question of how to confront capitalism and and neoliberal globalization and i think it's, it's, it's very unfair to make us have to choose between le pen and and macron you know uh, and that's exactly what happened in the french election
political landscape has changed since 1994. I mean, even the 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 leftist party in Sweden, they used to be called uh, Vänsterpartiet Kommunisterna. They used to have the word communist in the, in the title. They dropped that, of course. You know, it wasn't it wasn't very um, viable to call yourself a communist any longer. But even they used to be very adamantly against the EU. And now they have officially dropped from their party program the idea of Sweden leaving the European Union because it's so connected to a right-wing policy. And I think that at, at the moment, it's impossible to discuss this openly without being classed uh, according to this binary scheme. But I think 20 or 30 years ahead, people will be looking back at this period and saying and seeing that the political landscape was transformed for very instrumental reasons, I think. I mean, as, as I said, I, uh, I don't know what, to, what is really a conspiracy, but... In terms of politics, yes, I think there are conspiracies. And I think that people were very much aware of the fact that uh, in, in the French election, for example, people would choose to vote on Macron and neoliberal capitalism as long as the Le Pen alternative was was visualized as, as, as the, the seat of all evil. And of course, of course. Meanwhile, all, meanwhile Macron is uh, pushing through Le Pen's policies in terms of exactly. anti-Islam agenda as well. So exactly. <laughs> Cosmopolitanism and the and the uh, uh, subscription to global neoliberal capitalism can very much be a class issue, also where the populists, so to speak, are the low-income people, the, the people who never get into an airplane, who never publish themselves in a newspaper, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, and and these people are are very much marginalized in the current situation. And he, but even expressing these these uh, that this is a problem is a problem in Sweden, and I know not just in Sweden mm. because because it means that the binary scheme that there is means that you risk slipping yeah, yeah, into yeah. one hole. If you so, if you're not with us, you're against us. Exactly. Kind of exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's but it's really really dangerous how this how this how this crass threat of so-called right-wing populism and how that is used to further entrench something as 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 radical and extremist as a free market w- mm. which then can paint itself as being moderate right which then can paint itself as like if either either you're for global free trade or you're with the you're with the neo-Nazis, basically. And it's also why the Financial Times and The Economist spend so much of their virtual column inches in talking about the conflicts between Brussels and Orban and Brussels and Poland as well, is it, it allows you to set up this idea that, indeed, if you are against the EU... Uh, as an institution, then you're de facto with with Orban, you know, um, and with that whole project, yeah.
It, it becomes very, very obvious. And, uh, you know, I, a, a couple of years ago, I participated in a book called The Political Economy of Degrowth. And, um, and I guess I was arguing on the importance of redesigning money in order to, um, to counter the destructive processes that we're seeing. And, and I, uh, I understand that even in the degrowth movement, there are a lot of people who are worried that if we talk too much about localization, then that's going to mean we're xenophobic, you know? So it, it, it became so obvious for me that, that neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism had somehow widened its ideological platform uh, and, 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 and brought in the kind of, the kind of, uh, uh, Participants in the political debate that 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 I, I I'm used to being affiliated with. I mean, when I became a, a sheep farmer way back in the in the 70s, um, I felt I was turning my back on on capitalism. But now I think doing that would be you know suspect. What are you xenophobic? Do you want to you know? It, 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 the local is not what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, yeah. So the question is, how far can we go in a critique of modernity? without becoming suspect. I remember being misunderstood decades ago as being a pre-modernist, wanting to somehow resuscitate or revitalize a pre-modern condition. I, I, I would argue instead that what I'm trying to do is to, to transcend modernity by becoming even more modern. As I write in Global Magic, we have to be become even more ma modern. We have to understand the sort of the, the, the aspects of modernity that, that need to be illuminated and, and, and get control of those aspects of modernity that we do not have control over, like money. But, but you know, to, to, to control money and to make it serve its purposes, to serve hum, humanity rather than vice versa. And vice versa, of course, is fetishism. Uh, but to make it serve humanity, we need to get our eyes on it. Mm. We need to objectify it and get a detached look at it. And what could be more modern than that? So in that sense, I'm not an anti-modernist or a pre-modernist. I want to I move beyond modernity. I want to use modernity against itself. <laughs> that's I like that a lot. That's great. Yeah, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think that's the only way we can move ahead. There's no way we can regress. Uh, we can, we, we can, it, it's like these people who talk about rationality, uh, uh, to, to understand the, the threshold, the threshold where rationality becomes irrational, like Ivan Illich does about medicine and traffic. He always shows how technology becomes irrational uh, by reaching a point where it's no longer, no longer serves its purpose. Mm. And, and, and we have to reach for those points. And that is not to give up on modernity, but just to pursue it relentlessly. 
wherever it's going to take us, you know? And um, so that's where I think Heidegger and Illich and uh, all these people have something in common. Uh, they're modernists and they can show how perverted the modernist project can become through technology, through economy. so much outrage about so-called uh, like right-wing ideology, which is, I, I wonder to what extent that's the product of this increasing lack of alternatives for the types of kind of half-baked intuitions about there being something wrong. You know, if someone today, like a, sh a sheep farmer like yourself in the countryside saw the willow bushes growing, where could they go with that intuition? There's a, there's not much uh, diversity in the in the kinds of institutions and the kinds of discursive arenas that they can that they can turn to, and I think that's a really really dangerous environment because yeah. it almost sets us up in a way that the sparks or the seeds of healthy intuitions turn into the most unhealthy thing in our society. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and we need to disentangle that because otherwise we're either embracing the very unhealthy outcome or we have to deny the health that is at the root of it, these intuitions about what is going on here with these big trawlers fishing all the fish in front of where, where mm. my ancestors used to get all their fish from and they, they're all these big EU trawlers or what's the matter with all these willow bushes being planted all of a sudden and with the E or EU's, uh, um, EU subsidies for mm. bizarre forestry policies. Uh, There's so much frustration at the local level. And I mean, even, you know, I, I, I thought if you look at the American, the recent American elections, I thought that Biden would win by much, much wider margin than, than he did. And I, I just think it's so amazing after those years with Donald Trump that he just, you know, it was barely beaten. Mm. And, and, and that's a lot of people. That's a number of tens of millions of Americans. And that, that should tell you something about the level of frustration that's built up locally and, 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 and in the countryside. And we yeah. have similar similar situations, I think, in, in, in Europe, in most countries, and certainly in, in Britain with the Brexit situation. And that, that's got to tell you something about what neoliberal globalization and, 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 and the whole cosmopolitan outlook is doing to people's sense of belonging and community. They feel marginalized, I think, and, 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 and they think they take it out by joining these very... Um, suspicious politicians who, who capitalize. And that's that's also why I think it's so valuable that the general direction that you're proposing for, for measures for experimentation is not anatomical, is not sort of just looking at this one issue and saying, let's fix right-wing ideology, let's fix mm. uh, environmental degradation. But, and I, and I do wonder to what, ex because I mean, you're proposing something like that alternative currency is something that could, perform a, a, a more healing kind of magic on many of these arenas in ways that we might not even need to 
Yeah, well, actually, I, I do think it might even it might even uh, assist in in the problem of, of identity construction, which I think is really real um, for for people today. Local communities are are very fragmented, and uh, knowing where you are in the world is, is is very important to your sense of existential security. Uh, I know when I moved out into the countryside, I, I I sort of felt that it was an identity project. Also, you know, these mm. these are my neighbors, and you know, this is my place in the world. This is where I live, and these are my relationships. Uh, and uh, and that is, uh, people are increasingly losing that sense. They are being absorbed by global media, and they. Most of the decisions that influence them are taken very far from where they are, and 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 uh, I think that that changing the economy is really very important for changing a sense of identity. Also, that part of the problem is exactly even even here it's it's money, even in 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 the way it shapes our identities, because it makes everything exchangeable. And I would argue that that is precisely at the core of modernity. Everything is interchangeable, right? Uh, that's what money tells us, the market tells us. But it also means that people are interchangeable. Places are interchangeable. Things are interchangeable. The market makes everything interchangeable. So we move into an abstract landscape of, of commodities. And, and, and I think that there is a, there's a strong urge to get reconnected with something that's not interchangeable, that's not exchangeable, a place.